Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. And joining us now is Ed Young, staff writer for The Atlantic. He's written a new piece titled How the Pandemic Now Ends. And we'll talk to him about the stage of the pandemic we're in and how it is now likely to end with the rise of the Delta variant. Welcome back to Forum, Ed Young. Hi, thanks for having me. Really glad to have you on. You've described us as now in a fourth stage and that we got to this stage in the pandemic because of some destructive instincts similar to the ones that got us into the first three stages. What did we do wrong in the last several months, Ed Young? Um, I think probably the most significant thing was that we put all of our eggs in one basket, um, the, that, and that would be vaccination. I, I think America pursued a strategy of vaccination almost to the exclusion of other things. You know, we had um, a few months ago the CDC deciding that, uh, announcing that vac- fully vaccinated people no longer needed to mask indoors. And that sort of traded off some of our most effective tools, masks and vaccines, against each other rather than using them together. This is something that I actually warned about last September. I said that Mm. we we almost um, practiced like serial monogamy with our solutions. We could only focus on one at a time. And (laughs) that's uh, that was ill advised. Um, in a situation when we just had the normal coronavirus to deal with and it becomes incredibly foolish in a situation where the much more transmissible Delta variant is spreading around. Um, We need to use all of the tools at our disposal um, rather than just um, putting all of our eggs in a single um, biomedical basket. And not all of us were even taking up uh, that option as well. Uh, I also like the point you made about how we succumb to magical thinking, as you called it, by acting as though the variant that was ravaging India would not end up in our country where so few are vaccinated. Yeah, I I think that's absolutely right. Um, India showed perfectly well the damage that that, uh, Delta could do. And watching it catch us unawares just felt like a recap of early 2020 when we saw the original coronavirus tearing through China and yet somehow felt that the West, maybe because of its biomedical might and its resources, wouldn't be so badly affected. That turned out not to be right. It turned out not to be right again this year with Delta and its early arrival in places like the US. I think many experts here predicted that there would be something worrying happening in the fall. And most of the people I talked to were really surprised that that actually happened in the summer. And I worry that that reflects this sort of continued hubris that we are somehow 
more protected by dint of resources or, or medical power than the rest of the world. I think the, the coronavirus in all of its forms is showing that to be a huge lie. And for a long time, we've been hearing doctors and scientists say that we will be unlikely to eradicate COVID-19 in part because of Delta and in part because of just who we are and our habits and how we've treated it up to this point, um, that it will become an endemic like the flu. In your piece, you do go into detail about how the Delta variant has ensured that endemicity, if I'm saying that correctly, is now yes. unavoidable. Why? Why? What is it about Delta that makes that so? So um, the simple fact is that it is much, much more transmissible than the original virus. So we, when we think about an, a virus's capacity to spread between from infected people to other people, we often talk, talk about this number called R0. Um, so the original virus had one of about two or three, which means that on average, each infected people went and spread it to two or three others. With Delta, that number is between five and nine. So it is just much more contagious. And if you do the math, um, what that means is with the vaccines that we currently had, um, even if the vast majority of people were vaccinated, um, and even if the R0 is at the low end of that range, you would virtually need to vaccinate everyone to um, bring Delta transmission down to a point where it fizzles out automatically. That's the herd immunity idea. And if Arnold is at the high end of that range, say nine, then that just becomes mathematically impossible based on the vaccines that we currently have. That sounds terrible, <laughs> um, and it certainly isn't great. Um, but th here's the thing, the vaccines can still blunt the size um, and the, uh, the, the damage caused by a Delta surge. What I'm saying now is that those surges cannot simply be prevented by vaccinations alone. We need to use vaccines, absolutely, because they are still the best solution for individuals to protect themselves. But as communities, as societies, as a nation, we cannot use that as a single line of defense. The math just doesn't check out. Hmm, that's pretty jarring. We're talking with Ed Young, staff writer for The Atlantic, his new pieces, How the Pandemic Now Ends. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join this conversation if you'd like. What questions do you have about the phase of the pandemic that we are in now? And knowing that it is going to become endemic. I'm wondering if you've already thought about how you plan to coexist with the virus, maybe things that you are doing now that you will continue to do. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. You can also email us, forum at kqbd.org. So Ed Young, could you go into what something being endemic means? I feel like the closest thing that I can come up with or a good comparison is the flu and how we manage the flu. 
Right, um, and there are also um, the four common, the four other coronaviruses that are already circulating that cause um, common colds. Um, these uh, these diseases, those those viruses, cause colds and not something as horrific as COVID because we're used to them. We have prior immunity to them. They are a part of our lives. And the same thing is likely to happen at some point with this new virus. At some point, most everyone is going to have some immunity to it, either preferably because they got vaccinated or less so because they encountered the virus and survived and built up immunity naturally. And at some point when sufficient people enter that state, we're going to have, have a much more peaceful relationship with the virus. It's not going to cause these dramatic surges that are going to um, you know, shut down schools or uh, flood ICUs to the same extent. Now, we don't know when that point is going to happen. Is it going to, well, are we going to reach it by the end of this fourth surge? Opt some optimists might say yes, but I would be, I wouldn't put a huge amount of money on that. The real answer is that we don't know. And the problem is that because Delta is so transmissible, because it has the capacity to flood hospitals and shut schools and, and all the rest, we still need to do everything that we can to shunt as many infections as far into the future as possible. So in some ways, the endemicity endpoint is, is a little different, but what we need to do is still the same. We still need to buy time to shore up the rest of our defences, to get as many people vaccinated as possible, and to protect the vulnerable among us who don't benefit so much from vaccinations or are, who are un, uh, ineligible for them still. And is that in, in many ways your response to people who may think, well, if endemicity is the future, then masks, distancing, other precautions that we're taking, um, you know, would just would just delay it and you know, why should we focus on delaying it so much? I guess I yeah. can just, yeah, I see a lot of people I, saying, if we're going to get it anyway. Right. I, I, absolutely. I hear that argument a lot. And it's understandable, especially because people are so fed up. But I think that the point is, as we have currently seen, um, you, if you just let the virus rip through a community, it will cause incredible amounts of damage. We can't afford for schools to close down for another year. We can't afford to see what is happening to hospitals right now. We can't afford to lose a generation of healthcare workers to, to burnout and, and mental health problems. Um, it just, we just can't allow ourselves to do that. And there are huge gains to still be made. It's much of the country still isn't vaccinated and contrary to a lot of people's beliefs, um, some of them are persuadable. Um, it's not just the case that they're all like staunch anti-vaxxers. We can still make a difference, but we need to buy ourselves time to make a difference. Now, some people might be wondering, I'm vaccinated, why do I still need to wear masks and take precautions. You know, I've done, as you say, um, the best thing I could have done to protect myself. Well, the problem is that individualistic thinking got us into this mess. We cannot deal with a pandemic as a collection of unconnected individuals looking out for our own self-interest because infectious diseases by their nature spread. If you don't take any precautions and if you decide to just go look out for yourself, 
then you're going to get into a situation where your community crashes because of closed schools and overrun hospitals. So we do still need to be in this together and we still need to buy time. You know, maybe it's not buying time for a vaccine to arrive, but it's buying time for those vaccines to be used for other people, for as many people to be as safe as possible. Well, let me go to caller Mary in Lake County. Hi, Mary. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, I wanted to ask earlier, you had mentioned that the transmission rate for Delta was about six to nine, and you brought up India. And I was wondering, yeah, what is going on with India? Because when it did break out there with their billions of people population and, and much more rural and um, unsanitary conditions and the lack of um, hospital, hospitals to serve all these people, what, where does India stand now with treating the Delta variant and mm. how are they ca- coming along? Yeah, thanks, Mary, and what we can learn. Ed Young. Um, so to, to clarify, I'm not a reporter who is based in India, who did any reporting about India. Um, other people at the Atlantic did that. I will point out that surges end, right? Um, and they often end because, well, frankly, a lot of people die and also because people change their behavior because new restrictions come in. Um, you know, I, I don't think the lesson that we take from India is... Um, here is a country with, you know, unsanitary conditions or fewer resources and, you know, we'll, we're better off. I think we should take it as a warning sign that um, a lot of different places are vulnerable. The U.S. is still largely vulnerable. Um, at le- you know, a- around half of people are unvaccinated. Those people tend to cluster geographically and socially, which creates huge pockets of vulnerability through which Delta can spread. And it is doing that. Let me go to caller Richard in San Francisco. Hi, Richard. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I had heard that even with vaccination, the Delta variant reproduces in your body just as much as without vaccination, but you just don't get sick. Is that correct? And I have a follow-up if that is correct. Uh, So that is not correct um, for a couple of reasons. Um, What what I think the listeners is, um, the caller is referring to is this idea um, based on um, the CDC's recent analysis of an outbreak in Provincetown, Massachusetts, that both vaccinated and unvaccinated people who are infected have similar viral loads. Now, you could argue whether that's actually true, but even if it is, there is clearly other evidence that those viral loads fall more substantially and much more quickly among vaccinated people than unvaccinated people. So Mm. you might build up similar amounts of virus in your nose at the start of an infection, but people who are vaccinated stamp on it more quickly. So you have much less virus in you overall throughout the course of the infection. And that makes sense based on how vaccines work, right? These vaccines induce immune defenses that circulate around your body. It takes them a while to recognize a virus that intrudes in your nose. But once they do, they should be able to get it under control, which is why, again, breakthrough infections, even if they're a bit symptomatic, even if they cause like cold or flu-like symptoms, they're not necessarily a, like a sign that everything is falling apart and the vaccines aren't working. What the vaccines are really incredible at doing is preventing severe disease. 
is keeping people out of hospital, stopping them from getting really sick. For much of the pandemic, we have thought about SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus, and COVID-19, the disease, as being synonymous with each other. They are not. The virus doesn't have to cause the disease. And with vaccination, we can disconnect to the two. That is part of the point of getting vaccinated. So even if you do get a breakthrough infection, you're much less likely to become severely ill. Well, this listener tweets, are there currently effective treatments for COVID disease, at least at the early stages? Are these easy to access? What new treatments are being studied or developed? We do know that there are treat that treatment options are are changing at hospitals. They are more readily available. Do you have sort of an update for this listener on where that stands? Um, yeah, and it's not an entirely positive one, I'm afraid. Um, this comes up a lot, right? Like everyone, uh, I think a lot of people assume that we are going to develop treatments that solve this problem. Like if people, people might get COVID and then they'll be cured, full stop. Um, unfortunately, it's actually unlikely and it's very hard to do. Viruses are very difficult to create treatments for. Um, it's not like a bacterial illness where antibiotics work really well in a kind of wonder drug panacea-ish way. Um, antiviral treatments usually offer incremental benefits. Um, and the big gains for COVID, for treating COVID, have largely been about just better hospital care, like the fundamentals of hospital care are better. Doctors know how to treat patients with this condition. They know when to put them on a ventilator or not. They know to flip patients who are in a, on a ventilator. But like, you really shouldn't be expecting some miracle wonder drug that sorts out the problem um, uh, that, you know, that makes the pandemic not a problem anymore. It, it's, it's very, very difficult to achieve that for viral illnesses. And some of the things that, you know, we have that seem to, um, that, that, ha that have done well um, are difficult to access. Like monoclonal antibodies are difficult to access and only work in the very earliest stages of treatment and are also very expensive. You know, good news if you are, say, the president, not great news if you are most other people. Yes, we're talking with Ed Young and we're talking with you, our listeners. If you want to join the conversation about questions regarding the phase of the pandemic we're in, uh, anything that Ed Young is bringing up in terms of the reasons that we do need to buy ourselves some time with this virus to be able to reach a point when it can be under control and protect people along the way. Or if you're just having thoughts right now about how you plan on coexisting with it, I'd love to hear them. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us forum at kqed.org. You can check out Ed Young's piece in The Atlantic. It's titled, How the Pandemic Now Ends. Cases of COVID-19 are rising fast. Vaccine uptake has plateaued. The pandemic will be over one day, but the way there is different now. Stay with us for more Forum after the break.
You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Atlantic staff writer Ed Young about why COVID-19 will be a recurring part of our lives and the rocky path we face to getting it under control. You can join the conversation at 866-733-6786 by emailing us forum at kqed.org or posting your thoughts on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Let me go to Kenneth and Benicia. Hi, Kenneth. Hey, how are you doing? Thanks for having me. Um, I just wanted to say, you know, with everything we're doing today in the Bay Area or locally in our city of Venetia, it is not really what's going to make this be over very quickly. And it's spreading throughout the schools. Uh, people are being irresponsible. Our own city has to try to get people to wear a mask and, and people are not wearing masks and think that's okay. I mean, I think what's going to happen is there's going to be a lot of people hospitalized and a lot of children affected, and we're not doing the testing in the schools. We're not doing the preventive care. Uh, Parents are coming to pick up kids without masks on, and I think we're going to be in for a horrific fall. And uh, I don't think this is going away anytime soon, but at the same time, I think it really lets us appreciate what we love and who we hold dear in our life. Hmm. Thank you. Yeah, well, thanks for saying that at the the end there, Kenneth. And um, Ed Young, I was struck when you noted in your piece that none of the experts you talked to would predict when we would reach the point that we had COVID-19 under control. Uh, we mm-hmm. did hear Dr. Fauci recently suggest that spring of 2022 could bring some degree of normality. But I'm wondering when you were talking to people, how they did see that sort of last stretch, the home stretch, because at one point you do uh, quote somebody who says, we'll have a big exit wave. And I wasn't quite sure how to take that. Yeah, I I think the the reality of of Delta, um, as we said before, is if we're only relying on vaccination to keep it under control, if you lift every other measure, if you try and head back to the world of 2019, but with more people with vaccines in their arms, we will get surges again. And I think that's that's the reality of our current situation. We need to do more than just um, try and vaccinate ourselves out of it. Vaccines remain incredibly important, as I've said. We need to get as many people vaccinated as possible, but we need to do other things too. And I think part of, you know, one part of what we need to do is to reconsider our attitude to respiratory illnesses. Um, you know, the last caller talked about the behaviors that he was seeing around us. Um, you know, Tony Fauci has talked about maybe reaching a sense of normality in 2022. My point throughout the pandemic has been that normal led to this. And normal um, are the ways in which we've uh, structured our societies have created weaknesses that a new pathogen like this coronavirus can exploit. Um, And it comes down, I think a lot of it comes down to simple things like um, our attitudes to sickness, like when you are sick, are you going to wear a mask? Are you going to stay home from work or from school? Are employers going to penalize people from um, taking actions that prevent sickness from spreading in their community? Are we going to build systems, um, scientific systems that are actually good at watching the spread of new viruses or many of the respiratory illnesses we've already talked about, the colds and the flus that cause are among the top 10 causes of death um, in this country and around the world? Um, Why don't we have that in place already? Um, You know, not just before the pandemic, but a year and a half into this, we could be so much better 
culturally and technologically than the way we handle the viruses that spread to the air between us. And we're not doing that. We're just sort of banking on getting shots in our arms and heading back into whatever we did in 2019. And I think that's, I think that's foolish. That's a recipe for not only not controlling this pandemic, but leaving ourselves vulnerable to the next one. Yes, and much less even thinking about the rest of the world. For example, Jim writes, until the whole world is vaccinated with an effective vaccine, new COVID-19 variants, some of which may make the vaccines we presently have ineffective, may arise. Further, these new variants are not just possible, but perhaps even likely, which Shuitha, another listener, follows up with, what is the probability of more variants arising in the future? Thoughts on that, Ed Young? Yeah, I think these are really good points. Um, as I said earlier, that we cannot think of ourselves as self-interested individuals acting for us and us alone. We are part of a community, and that extends internationally. We are part of a global community. Um, the last, when I wrote that piece um, two weeks ago, I think it was just 16% of the global population that was fully vaccinated. Many parts of the world um, have barely vaccinated 1% of their citizens. And your, um, you know, your listeners are correct. That is not only a moral catastrophe, but it means that it creates the conditions for more um, and worse variants to arise. And I agree that I think if we let this situation go unchecked, um, we, we are almost guaranteed to get more variants and likely to get ones that may be more transmissible or maybe better at um, breaking through our immune defenses than Delta already is. Um, you know, peop the US has um, made moves to donate vaccine doses around the world, but I think those moves are insufficient. And I think they are working too slowly. Um, Delta is so transmissible that we don't have a lot of time to act. And my concern is that if we're talking about sending vaccine doses next year, a lot of people are going to be dead by that time. Um, we need to act on that now as a matter of moral urgency, not just to help the rest of the world, but to protect our own future. If we are acting in our own self-interest, then that the, the right course of action is to help everyone else. Let me go to caller Kay in Sacramento. Hi, Kay. Hi. Uh, I just wanted to thank you to KQED for uh, having a journalist on to explain the issues surrounding uh, this uh, disease and, uh, and how the virus works, how the COVID-2 works. Uh, I am recently widowed because of COVID, and uh, so I care a lot about uh, how people are wearing masks and uh, getting them out of the, uh, you know, totally just reliance on vaccines. And uh, it's so bothersome when people do not wear masks properly. They cover the mustache line or they, uh, they cover the chin. Uh, and I think that one of the mistakes of the CDC has probably been not paying good attention to human psychology. So anyway, thank you, KQED for getting a journalist. He's wonderful at explaining how the virus works. Okay, thank you. He, he is wonderful, and I, I'm so sorry for your loss. Uh, thank you Me for too, calling Kay. in. Yeah, and, and sharing that. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. 
There is a moment in your piece where you say, and I will just read it, Ed Yong, you write, the current pandemic surge and the inevitability of endemicity feel like defeats. They could instead be opportunities to rethink our attitudes about the viruses we allow ourselves to inhale. And I think at some point, we all reached in this last year and a half, maybe intuitively, if not articulated, that our lives will never be the same <laughs> again. Your your article, Ed Young, really, really brought that back home to me. And I do want to spend a little time focusing now on some of the things that you did have people say about what they foresee. Um, you quoted someone as saying that, uh, you know, my phone can tell me if I need to carry an umbrella. I want it to tell me if I need to put a mask on that day because there's a virus circulating around. Um, you talked about, of course, earlier, just things that we can do structurally in terms of monitoring viruses as well. What do you foresee for our um, COVID-19 endemic world, not pandemic world? <laughs> um, I think, as we said, it's hard to make predictions. Um, I choose to talk about the most hopeful possible options to give us a sense of what we could achieve if we really put um, our minds and hearts to it. Um, I, I think it is possible to have a much better sense of the viruses that we inhale and that make us sick. You know, before COVID, um, you know, I had a I had a really bad bout of what I called the flu, but who knows what that was? Um, and why do I not know what that was? We have the technology to find out, and we could, um, you know, we could monitor the viruses that circulate around us. We could do better sequencing to track the rise of new variants. Um, you know, we could connect that to uh, resources like a phone app, as you said, um, that give us information about how to take preventive actions in our lives. Um, you know, we have that in those, those, system in those, those systems in place for things like the weather, as the scientist who um, I talked to told me and who you quoted, you, know, you have an app on your phone that tells you whether it's going to rain or not. And we have that because ungodly amounts of money are poured into weather forecasting. We don't have the same investments or the desire to make such investments for diseases. And it seems a bit baffling right now to think about why that might be. Um, you know, I think we, um, we can rethink our attitudes to things like prevention. Already on this call, we've had people asking about treatments, and it's so much better to stop getting diseases in the first place. Um, you know, a lot of Asian cultures have, um, have widespread regular mask use, um, which, as we've seen during this pandemic, and as your last listener mentioned, really works. Why don't we do, why, do, why, why are we still arguing about that? when it is so cheap and efficient um, and, and works so well. Like, there are so many things about the ways in which we've been negligent about our own health that I think we can do much better at. And that includes things like ventilation, which people have talked about so much during this pandemic and which could be much better. It, you know, it includes congregate settings like nursing homes and prisons where the coronavirus ran so much. Like I said, like I said, um, we have built a society that is actually intensely vulnerable to exactly this kind of thing. And, you know, we now get to choose 
what lessons we take away from that. Normal did lead to this. So do we want to go back to that or do we want to start creating a new, better normal? Atlantic staff writer Ed Young, his piece is How the Pandemic Now Ends. That's what we're discussing. And you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. On that point, Kevin asks, my question goes to the future of our social environment. Simply put, will we be needing to wear masks forever if we're attempting to implement the most effective community-based solution to COVID? And I guess other viruses as well. Um, No, I don't think so. Um, I don't think it's forever. And I think even now, um, uh, you know, I I think we'll reach a point in which it can be much more tailored to what is happening at a community level. So, you know, if you have a community that is um, extremely highly vaccinated and where current circulate, like current um, transmission is very, very low, then there might be a case for not wearing masks um, or, or for you know reducing the frequency at which you wear them. If you have a community where Delta is tearing through and hospitals are full up, you will probably need to wear masks plus distancing a lot of other precautions, right? So we we will probably enter a situation at some point where things become a lot more locally tailored. But there are a couple of caveats to that. Firstly, a lot of um, state leaders have made it very difficult for local leaders to actually implement those kinds of measures because they pass legislation that ban things like mask mandates. Um, But also our data, frankly, are terrible. Like people, Hmm. we still aren't testing enough. Um, And your co-host Alexis knows this better than almost anyone else. We're still not testing enough. We, um, you know, we're now in a ridiculous situation where people are still queuing up for hours and like to get tests and getting results back in dates. That's just insufficient. Like having a better testing system, having testing be a regular part of our lives is part of this future that I've mentioned where we get better at dealing with these kinds of diseases. And it is ludicrous that uh, that a country as well resourced as America should be in the state where it is where it just doesn't have a real time handle on the, probably the you know what is arguably the greatest health crisis of our modern time. Like, we should have that handle, and we we don't. One and a half years in, and that is an immense source of frustration to so many people I know who are trying who are on the front lines of this. Well, this listener writes, I've heard one in five vaccinated people who get the virus, even with few symptoms, can have long-term effects. Can you speak to that? Um, sorry, say, uh, just say the stat again. One in five, which I'm not sure if we even have a good sense of the stats right. on long-term effects. Yeah. Yep, yep. So, um, yes. So long COVID um, is a huge problem. Uh, we don't know the exact prevalence of it, but, um, you know, it's fair to say that a significant proportion of people who uh, get COVID-19 will continue to have long-term symptoms. I just spoke to a woman this morning who I calculated is on day 572 of wow. symptoms. Um, to be clear, Some people recover after, say, several months, but a lot of people are still sick and we still don't understand why. Can't predict who is going to get long COVID. Sometimes it's young, previously healthy athletes. Um, It's really hard to predict, to to know what exactly is causing it, let alone how to treat it. Um, I am actually writing a piece about long haulers and long COVID and where things stand with that right now, which should be out hopefully next week. But um, I I think you're right. This deserves much more attention. Um, 
long long haulers, uh, people with long COVID, have done phenomenal work in defining and describing and drawing attention to um, their own plight uh, and their own condition. They know more about it than anyone else. Um, And, um, you know, I think that it's good that there is more acknowledgement of it, Um, But I think that to really get a handle on what long COVID is and how to deal with it, we need to respect the voices of the people who have it, the patients who know more about it than anyone else. Casey writes, I'm a 40-year-old vaccinated male. I locked up tight over the past year but was eager to resume normal activity. I continue to go to the gym, get groceries, and see friends. I have returned to masking during these activities. Am I being irresponsible by resuming them, even while masked? Casey's question, which you are welcome to answer, just also the fact that Casey is wondering these things actually reminds me a little bit of of, of how there's also just like the mental pandemic scars, <laughs> like yeah. how we go about in the world when we're we're concerned about our normal activities, I guess, to this degree. Right. I, I, I sympathize fully. And, and look, I, 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 it's really hard to give any one person advice about their specific circumstances. Right. Um, you know, the calculus is so hard. I think if Casey is fully vaccinated and masking, um, you know, there's, it, you know, I, I certainly don't see it as reasonable to say go, you know, go go to the grocery store um, or like to see small groups of friends who might also be taking precautions like I am certainly doing that. Um but I, I think I think you've hit on something very deep and very important. Like the the mental toll of having to make these calculations is enormous, and it, it's you know it feels like it's getting worse than ever. Like I say, I um, joked on Twitter recently that it felt like twenty in twenty twenty the questions we were asking were like, can I go running outside? And in twenty twenty one the questions are like my brother is fully vaccinated and only tells lies and my roommate is unvaccinated and an INTJ and we have to go to a 122 person wedding across a river with some with a fox some a, a chicken and some grain how do we do that um you know it's like layers and layers of logic problems threaded on top of each other and it is frankly exhausting i i sympathize i find it I find it exhausting too. And I think it's exhausting because we're in a stage where we never really pull out all the stops to control the pandemic or to create a better world. And we can do that now. Well, Ed Young, that's a great thought to leave us on. Ed Young of The Atlantic, this is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. 
So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.